0: The story is told of a great violinist who announced that he would give a concert using an unusually expensive instrument, violin, and on the designated night, violin lovers packed the hall to hear the instrument played. The violinist came out on stage and gave an exquisite performance, climaxed by the thunderous ovation from the appreciative crowd and then he bowed to acknowledge their cheers and suddenly threw the instrument to the floor and stomped on it, stomping it to pieces, and then walked off stage. And the audience was absolutely horrified. A few moments later, the stage manager came out and said to the stunned crowd, ladies and gentlemen, the violin that was just destroyed was a $20 violin. The maestro will now return to play on the advertised instrument, or thousands of times more. He did so, but the interesting thing is, is that few people could tell the difference. The point of the story is clear. It isn't primarily that the instrument that makes the music. It's the master who wields it. I think most of us would agree that at best, we are nothing more than $20 violins. In the hands of the master violinist, Jesus Christ, however, our lives can make beautiful music to the world. And the Lord uses all kinds of inadequate, unqualified people to carry out his work. And I have one looming question for you this morning. And I want this question to really linger in your minds and let it saturate your hearts and may it drive you for the rest of this year. Here it is. Is God calling you? Is God calling you? That's a question I want each of you to consider seriously and answer before this message is through, if you can. Because I think we could but I don't want you to be too quick to answer it because the implications of either a yes or a no answer are life altering is God calling you not only is the answer to that question extremely significant in our own personal lives but in the world at large Although it is the convicting and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that can apply this life-changing power of the gospel, Jesus Christ's atoning death, burial, and resurrection to people's lives, it's still up to us to declare it to other people. Is that right? Amen. We're supposed to be communicating And as someone observed, the declaration of the gospel is in the hands of those who have already experienced the new life and are willing to tell it to others. Now, the call to discipleship is not based on who you are or what you can do. It is based on who Jesus is and what he can do with you when you make yourself available to him. Listen to what you're amening. That's his plan for world evangelization. God working through you and me. Us, a bunch of common, everyday instruments in the hands of the ultimate musician, making priceless spiritual music to a sold-out crowd. Listen, The call to discipleship is the intention of God. It's that simple. He's calling us to be his disciples that he might send us out to make other disciples. Ever since he chose his initial staff of 12, he has been in the business of adding to it. So, to derive a better understanding of God's call to us to become His disciples, it's best to draw out just what characterized His choosing of His most trusted staff. I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 10, if you would, right now in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to begin reading in Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then it lists all those 12 who were his disciples that he sent out now if we were to continue on reading in Matthew chapter 10 you would find out that the whole of chapter 10 is a mouthful on discipleship it is the discipleship chapter up to this point in his earthly ministry Jesus had done it all by himself pretty much alone granted he had followers but that's all they were they were followers they were not considered fellow workers there was a process involved as the Twelve went from being disciples to apostles, which is what we just saw here. People specifically sent to carry His message to the world. And I believe that Jesus takes us, all of us, through that same basic pattern. And by the way, it's the pattern by which our Fayette Baptist Church mission statement was actually developed, the longer, more detailed statement. But our short statement is this: to introduce people to Jesus Christ, and to help them to become His committed followers. That's our mission and purpose, and we do that in a fourfold approach. Hopefully, carry that out, and that was derived from Jesus's pattern of ministry in His call to send out disciples. I'm just going to give it to you on the screen. We're not going to look up the scriptures as I give it to them because we're going to look at them later on today, but. Here here's the four phases. Number 1 is the introduction phase. The introduction phase and it's based on John 1, 35 to 39, Jesus' words, "Come and you will see." Come and you will see. And that's what we do with people, right? When we introduce people to Jesus Christ. We tell them, "Come. Come on and you're going to see Jesus." Jesus issues the invitation these disciples were still primarily in the stages of seeking. Second phase is called the invitation phase. Based on Matthew 4, 18 to 22, Jesus says, follow me and I will make you. I will make you what? Fishers of men. That was Mike's, one of Mike's favorite verses that we looked at yesterday. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Third stage is called the incorporation stage. That's based on Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, which says this. Jesus says, be with me and I will send you. Jesus called his disciples so that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach. Okay? Following before fishing, being with before sending out, The fourth phase is called the involvement and investment stage phase. This is where Jesus says in John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. You'll bear fruit. That's Jesus' pattern of discipleship. That's the process by which people grow to maturity in Christ. None of them can be bypassed, none can be excluded. Let me ask you, where are you in this process? Or are you even in it at all? Notice the subtle transformation here in in chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now the names of the 12, what's it say? Apostles. Oh, change in designation. From disciples to apostles. They were first called disciples. A disciple is simply a learner, one who is taught, but their designation changed from one who is taught to one who is sent. When it was sent to teach, that's what the name Apostle means. They were entering this third phase of Jesus' four-phase approach, this phase of be with me and I will send you out to preach. They had come to him, and they had believed. They had followed him, and they had been changed. And they were now in the process of being with him and engaging in the work. This fourth phase of bearing fruit would come later after Jesus' ascension. But the first step in the process, however, that you need to realize this morning to answer that, call, that question that I gave you at the beginning is are you called, or is God calling you is that discipleship begins, our call to discipleship begins with God's personal invitation. God's personal invitation, Jesus calls you. No one can become a disciple of Christ unless he is called. No one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father who sent me draws him. John six forty four. Jesus said that. Discipleship begins with the subtle draw of the Father. The Father. The Old Testament words are clear, which Paul quoted. He said, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. In reality, we don't choose Christ. He chooses us then we choose to either accept or reject his call. Don't throw out the human dimension of this altogether. We're responsible to respond to his call. But remember, because we're sinners in opposition to God, we only seek him because he first draws us. I like to think of it as God tapping us on the shoulder, so to speak. God's initial call to us to be his disciples and later to become, in a sense, his sent ones, apostles with a small a, begins with a divine tap on your shoulder. Let me ask you a question. Have you felt it? Have you felt it? We can walk through life without ever feeling it, you know. We're not in tune. In a sermon from the 1940s, the late Peter Marshall senior, the well-known chaplain of the United States Senate, described this tap on the shoulder from a, from a book compiled by his wife called Mr. Jones Meets the Master. Great book. He says, if you were walking down the street and someone came up behind you and tapped you on the shoulder, what would you do? What would you do? Turn around. See, my, my son, Josh, you, a lot of you don't know Josh. He lives in Bath. He, he's Mr. Practical Joker. And he has this thing that he always does, and I, I don't, he's 30-something years old, you know, and he's, he's over 30, and he, he, he catches me on it every time, and he's been doing it since he's been a little kid. He walks up around you, puts his arm around you, and taps you on this shoulder, but he's over here. So, you always turn in the wrong way, and he gets the biggest kick out of that. And he's got this infectious laughter, and once he starts laughing, everybody in the room starts laughing. It's great to go to movies with him. When I think of that tap on the shoulder, that's what I think of. What do you do? You turn around. Naturally. Well, that is exactly what happens in the spiritual world. Peter Marshall says a man walks on through life with the external call ringing in his ears, but with no response, stirring in his heart. And then suddenly, without any warning, the spirit taps him on the shoulder. And what happens? He turns around. The word repentance means turn around. He repents and he believes and he's saved. The tap on the shoulder is the almighty power of God acting without help or hindrance upon an elect fallen sinner so as to produce a new creation and to lead him into the particular work which God has for him. God, he says, calls men to preach. How did preaching arise in the first place? By what right does a man stand before his fellows, Bible in hand, and claim their attention? What right do I have to do that? Not because he is better than they are, not because he has attended a theological seminary and studied Hebrew, Greek, and theology, but primarily because he is obeying a tap on the shoulder. Because God has whispered in the ear and conscripted him for the glorious company of those voices crying in the wilderness of life. The preacher is conscious of being called, as we say, and that means that he is responding to an inward urge that could not be resisted. An urge that grew out of a providential arrangement of his life and his circumstances to the great end that he should become an ambassador for for the chief. An urge that grew into a conviction that only by obeying could he ever find that joy and satisfaction of a life lived according to the plan of God. We have no choice. Discipleship begins with God's tap on your shoulder. Many of you in this room, probably most of you if you're here, will claim to be disciples of Christ. Disciples, as I've said, by definition are learners. They're in the process of being taught by their master teacher, Jesus. If you consider yourself to be a disciple of Jesus, I have a serious question for you this morning. Are you learning from Him? That's not a simple question. Are you learning from Him? I don't mean by coming here every week, listening and taking notes, and then as soon as you walk out the door before your hand even touches the door handle of your car, you've forgotten 90% of what you heard. I'm not naive to think that you will remember everything that I say. I don't even remember what I say half the time. Amen. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Now, I'm talking about real learning. I'm talking about real learning from Jesus himself. Are you hearing what he's saying to you personally? Through the word of God and through your prayer life with him. Are you soaking it in and actually attempting to put it into practice? So much of what we hear goes in one ear, out the other, right? Out of sight, out of mind. Listen, God has invited you to be his disciple. To learn from him. Do you understand what an incredible privilege, an act of grace that is? Do you understand? Can you get your head around that? Because we learn not only by hearing the word of God, but by doing the word of God. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says some pretty poignant words. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine, and what, acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock, everyone who hears them and does them. You know, Jesus' brother James had something to say about that as well. James chapter one verse twenty-two. James says, "Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves." You can come here all you want every week, after, week after week. Take the notes, listen, all that stuff. But if you don't actually implement what you're hearing Jesus say through the words that you're hearing here, you're deluding yourself. That's what James says. James doesn't mince his words. Most of us take God's tap on the shoulder for granted. We ignore it, don't we? Let me ask you a question. This morning, before I got up here to preach, before the worship time um, happened and, and then during the little break when the kids went out, I walked around this room and I tapped many of you on the shoulder. How many of you remember that? How many of you actually sensed it? If I asked you to raise your hand, I wonder how many of you would actually raise your hand. That you knew I tapped you on the shoulder. And I made it obvious. I know some of you are all sitting there thinking, was it me? (laughs) I'm not going to embarrass you. The point is, is that God is doing that. And we ignore it. I think at times we don't really want to acknowledge it for fear of what it might cost us. What we often fail to address is what it will, co- what, what will it cost you if you don't respond to it? Is God tapping you on your shoulder right now? What's it going to cost you if you refuse to respond? Jesus' pattern of calling out his 12 disciples is the same one that he uses on us. It's personal. And as we put together the various accounts of the way Jesus called his disciples, we uncover some very, very interesting and encouraging things about our own relationship to Christ as his followers. First thing I want to point out to you here is that he has personally summoned us. That's in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12, it says. We're going to look at a bunch of different passages of scripture. I'm not going to actually read them to you right now, but I want to read you a couple. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful, Paul says, through whom you were, what's it say? If you're there. Called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful through whom you were called. Jude 1. We don't go to Jude very often. Good practice to know where it is for you guys. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Called and kept remember those two words we're gonna get to those in a minute the word summoned here in Matthew chapter 10 verse 1 means to invite to call to oneself it's pretty self-explanatory but there's something much more personal about this call that we often miss he not only personally summons us but he personally desires you he desires us turn to Mark chapter 3 That makes it a little bit more intimate, doesn't it? Mark chapter 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself, what's it say? Wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he would send them out to preach. But he summoned those who he himself desired. He himself wanted. Did you catch that word? When Jesus taps you on the shoulder, it's because he personally desires to have you as his follower. Does that mean anything? He wants to teach you. He wants you to be with him. He wants to use you. Something else. He has personally chosen you. Luke chapter 6, verse 13. Luke 6, verse 13. And when the day came, he called his his disciples to him and chose. He chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. The word chose here indicates that it was a careful, careful selection. The picture is one of special privilege and choice, if you study the original word. Just as the twelve were handpicked by Christ, we are handpicked as his precious children. You, if you are a follower of Christ, have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 12. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, underline it, His choice of you, his choice of you, and he chose all of us with complete knowledge of our flaws and our weaknesses and our inadequacies. As we study the lives of the apostles, and we have in detail from this pulpit in this church, we have come to the encouraging realization that Jesus' basis of selection is way different than ours when we choose people to lead things and to do things. All things considered, when given a personal choice, what do you tend to do? What do you tend to do? We we tend to select the brightest and the best, right? That's, That's the terminology. I hear it among church circles and leaders all the time. Brightest and the best, brightest and the best. It's what the world does. The most attractive, the healthiest, the biggest, the smartest, the most popular, we do it. All the time as human beings, if Jesus selected disciples like we select fruit or we select cars or we select clothes or we select American idols or even pastors in some cases, most of us would have no hope of being used for God's kingdom. But Jesus, however, does not select his disciples on the basis of their innate worthiness or capabilities. He didn't select them on the merits of their faithfulness, sinlessness, intelligence, or their eloquence. His sole basis for selecting them rested on what he, could, he knew that he could make of them under his own power. That's the basis on which he selects people. And that is precisely the way he chooses you and me, not because we can do great things for him, but because he can do great things with us. He chooses the foolish and the weak, it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 and 28. He chooses the poor, James says in chapter 2, verse 5. He chooses the most unimaginable people to accomplish the most inconceivable feats for the kingdom of God. One of the most important statements I ever heard when I first entered training for the ministry, scared to death of my own inadequacy, was simply this. Somebody once told me this. Now it's pretty cliche, but that was the first time I had ever heard it. Some guy said to me, you know what? God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Jamie Buckingham once wrote these words that all of us would benefit in remembering. He said, when God needs a tool for service, he usually looks for something common to use. He doesn't reach for a knife that is factory sharpened. He prefers to hone his own edge out of rough metal. And it's true, right? That's just what the 12 were. And we are, when God calls us as disciples, rough metal. Actually, in my case, it was scrap metal. (laughs) These people were ordinary men, these 12. They were also an extraordinary mix, right? What was Jesus thinking when he chose Matthew, the tax collector, to be in the same small group as Simon the Zealot? And they were, they were violently opposed to each other before they came to Christ. No two men could have differed more widely, and surely they were on opposite ends of the spectrum from Jesus. But in the words of William Barclay, the plain fact is that if Simon the Zealot had met Matthew the tax gatherer anywhere else than in the company of Jesus, he would have stuck a dagger in him. Here is the tremendous truth that men, he says, who hate each other can learn to love each other when they both love Jesus Christ. Did you catch that, men and women? Teens? People who hate each other can learn to love each other when they both love Jesus. And what about Jesus choosing Judas Iscariot anyway? What was that all about? The one who he knew would betray him. He chose Thomas, the so-called skeptic, Peter, James, and John, measly fishermen, 12 drastically different personalities yet they became the very pillars on which the church of Jesus Christ was built and that's how he works always has and he's still doing it today and it's largely because there's no one on the face of the earth qualified to begin with right he has to qualify the cult God has only one choice transform the unqualified and use them as his instruments to do the impossible. There aren't any perfect people here. And Jesus is in heaven. He did not have much choice but to qualify the unqualified. Think about this biblical list with me for a moment of unqualified people that God has used mightily. Noah. He got drunk and conducted himself in a lewd way. God used him. Abraham doubted God, lied about his wife, and committed adultery. Isaac sinned as his father had taught him lying about his wife, Rebekah, to Abimelech. Jacob extorted the birthright from Esau, deceived his father, and raised a family of immoral children. Joseph was an outcast and hated by his brothers. Moses, he was a murderer, acted in pride, tried to steal God's glory by striking a rock rather than speaking to it was banished from, seeing, from going into the promised land because of it. Aaron, the high priest, led Israel in the worship of a golden calf and accompanying an orgy that they had. This is Aaron. Joshua was so deceived by the Gibeonites that he made a treaty with them instead of destroying them as God had told him to do. And because of his disobedience, Israel was troubled endlessly by them. Gideon had no confidence in himself, even less confidence in God's plan. Samson was a marked man with a lustful love for wretched women. Ruth was in the messianic line, yet she was an accursed Moabitess. Samuel was only a little child when he began to serve God. David, well, we don't have to talk too much about David, right? Ladies man, adulterer, murderer, poor father, and a man with such bloody hands that God wouldn't even let him build the temple. Solomon was the world's leading polygamist. Isaiah put his trust in a human king. Ezekiel was brash, tough, strong-minded, crusty, say what you think. Daniel was educated in a pagan country. Hosea married a prostitute. Jonah defied God and went in the opposite direction of what he was calling him to do. Habakkuk questioned God's divine plan. Elijah, Elijah, great prophet, was able to handle 850 false priests and prophets, but ran like a maniac from one trash talking woman, Jezebel. Paul was a former Christian persecutor and a murderer. These were simple men and women with not so great backgrounds, all of whom God tapped on the shoulder. And again, commentator William Barclay said it well. He says, it is on the stuff of common men and women that the church of Jesus Christ is founded. Jeremiah really kind of brings our attention to where it should be Jeremiah 9 23 and 24 great couple of verses good verses to memorize thus says the Lord let not a mighty man boast of his wisdom let not the mighty man boast of his might the wise man boast of his wisdom or the mighty man boast of his might let not a rich man boast of his riches but let him who boasts boasts of this that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness in the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. That's what we need to be if God's going to use us. We have nothing to boast of in ourselves. And may I repeat, it is God's sovereign choice of us that makes us disciples, not our choice of him. None of the twelve initiated the idea of Jesus be, of becoming Jesus' disciples. And they certainly did not come up with the notion of being designated as his apostles, and nor do we. Jesus poignantly reminded them and us of that fact in John chapter 15 and verse 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You didn't choose me, Jesus says. I chose you. So let me ask you again. Is God tapping you on the shoulder? If he is, stop and listen. Because he wants to use you. Like the original 12. He personally summons us. He personally wants us. He has carefully chosen us and something else. He personally appoints and sends us. Again, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 and verse 14. He appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach. And in in John 15, 16, which we just saw on the screen, is that Jesus chose his disciples in order that they would go and bear fruit for him. He personally appoints and sends us. The disciples didn't unconsciously drift into the service of Christ. They were appointed to service, and so are you, and so am I. Jesus has clearly established and assigned our place as his disciples. You and I have not fallen into it. We haven't been manipulated or coerced into discipleship. We have been invited, summoned, called, chosen, and appointed if you're a disciple. Those are powerful, powerful designations, aren't they? And why? So that we would go and bear fruit for him. If you were to receive a special appointment by a highly respected government official to some important office on earth, you'd consider that an exceptional honor, wouldn't you? And you'd probably be pretty proud of it, a privilege, something to highlight on your resume, right? You'd make sure everyone you knew knew about it. How much greater do you suppose you and I should consider our appointment as ambassadors for Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. How much greater? Discipleship begins with Jesus' personal invitation. He summoned you because he wanted you, he handpicked you and appointed you, and all of it happened because, get this now, get your head around this one, you were God's answer to Jesus' prayer for you. Think about that one for a minute. Second major thing that I want to say this morning before we close is this. Our discipleship is protected by Jesus' prayerful intercession. Our call to discipleship is protected by Jesus' prayer and His intercession for us. Luke chapter 6. If you want to turn there. Verse uh, 12. Luke 6:12 It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. These 12 were chosen and appointed when? When does it say? Verse 12. After Jesus sought his father's will in prayer, in intense prayer. Now that is a wildly important concept for you to grasp. Because if I read the Gospels correctly, I find that Jesus never did anything apart from the Father's will. Would you agree to that? Study Jesus' motivation for anything and you will find Him saying things like, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man cannot do anything of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. I can do nothing, Jesus said, on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All those verses in the scripture. You know what that means? That means that not only Christ's choice of the twelve, but Christ's choice of you and Christ's choice of me was ultimately his father's choice first. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are a gift from God the Father to his son Jesus. Should you feel good about that? You should. You are a gift of God the Father to His Son. Friends, Jesus not only prayed for God's will in choosing the twelve and interceded for them and their future ministry, but His prayer included us as well. Our ministries and our ultimate crossing of the finish line in glory. Don't believe me? Look at John 17. John 17 clearly shows us that. In His high priestly prayer, From verse six down, he starts to talk about his disciples, but as he gets down toward the end. Verse 13, I come to you now, Father, in these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent Me, that's us he's talking about. You get the fact that you and I are chosen as a direct result of God's will? Beyond that, we also have the assurance that there is nothing on the face of this earth that can ever separate us from his love and protection as we answer that call because Christ not only has prayed for us, but he is praying for us right now. Romans chapter 8 talks about that. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Will God? No. He's the one who's given us right standing with himself. Paul writes to the Romans. Who then will condemn us? Will Jesus Christ? No. For he is the one who died for us, was raised to life for us, and is now sitting at the place of highest honor next to God, pleading for us. Interceding. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able once and forever to save everyone who comes to God through Him, for He ever lives to make intercession for them. I love the way Eugene Peterson has paraphrased Jesus' words in John 6:37. This, this is what the message says: "Every person the Father gives me, Jesus says, eventually comes running to me. And once that person is with me, I hold on and I don't let go." Do you love the way that reads? Our discipleship is a product of Jesus' personal invitation and it is protected by Jesus' prayerful intercession. Your call to discipleship is the intention of God. I'll ask you again. Is he tapping you on the shoulder? Augustine once said, as I round this out, close it up, you are meant to incarnate in your lives the theme of your adoration. Now, I'm going to say this slowly so you can kind of grasp it. You are meant to incarnate in your lives the theme of your adoration. You are to be taken, consecrated, broken, distributed, that you may be the means of grace and vehicles of eternal Charity to others. Listen, if you're still wondering, God called Moses from leading a herd of sheep to leading the Exodus. He took Amos from the herds of Tekoa to be God's prophetic voice to a disobedient nation. He beckoned Peter, James, and John from fishing boats, and they left their nets to be fishers of men. He called William Carey the great missionary from a cobbler's bench and D.L. Moody from a shoe store in order to revolutionize the preaching of the gospel at home and abroad. He called my father-in-law from the gutter of alcoholism and attempted suicide to minister the gospel of life to me and my wife and a whole bunch of other alcoholics that are now serving the Lord. He called Alex from drowning in a bottle to drinking from the fountain of life. He called Glenn from digging in holes to helping people climb out of holes. He called me from running away from God to a life of trying to lead people toward God. He called others of you from broken lives of promiscuity, self-destruction, and sordid addictions to hearts made whole that live to share the healing love of Jesus with the hurting and the lost. From the mills, from the factories, from the office, from the farms, people come. From the ranks of mediocrity, from the gutters of sin, he taps people on the shoulder. He calls them, he changes them, he makes them his own powerful messengers. And my question is, are you one of them? The preacher's in the pulpit and the servant in his ministry, not because he or she has chosen that. They haven't chosen that profession as an easy means of livelihood, but because they couldn't help but do it. Because they have obeyed an imperious summons that cannot be denied. There is a passion that will not let them go. Because the call to discipleship is the intention of God. Is he tapping you on the shoulder? Is he? Is he? Because I think some of you sitting right here right now know that he is. And you're shaking it off. You're playing hide and seek with God. But he's not letting up. And your insides are churning. Even now, at the sound of these words that I'm saying, your heart's pounding so hard as you sit there in that chair that you're fearful the person sitting next to you is hearing it. So you shift nervously in your seat. What are you gonna do? What are you gonna do? You gonna continue playing games with God? Are you gonna stop making excuses and answer the call? Or are you simply going to ignore God? Because that's what it comes down to. Answer God's call. If he's tapping you on the shoulder, turn around and answer the call. You will not regret it.